As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 24 through 28 today. Well, it's graduation week. Last night we had a lot of our seniors graduate. I think we have 17 high school seniors this year. And so several of them graduated last night or this weekend. How many of you right here? we got Molly over here, and I think, Shelby, you're, you're coming up this week, right? So you need to talk to your school about that, don't you? Yeah, get that, all, get that all worked out. You know, I often tell graduates that it is a defining moment in your life, but graduation should not be the defining moment in your life. When you graduate, you're not retiring. There's still a little bit more work to do, and so it's actually the beginning of a new chapter in your life. I should also say to people, whenever you enter a new chapter, that your family, your church, are still here. We're here to help you and to walk alongside you, and you should know that no matter where you go in life, you are never alone. But graduation does produce somewhat of an identity crisis. For many, many years, you have been in a consistent environment where you had a consistent schedule, and you also had affirmation. You study for a test, you take the test, you do well, and the teacher gives you a good grade, and so you feel good about your efforts. But as you begin to graduate, now you have a lot of different options, and the way in which people measure you and see you also begins to change. I, I remember whenever I finished my doctorate work, I, I was about 31 when that occurred, and so I'd been in school since kindergarten. I, I, you know, I was like, well, what do I do now? You know, I mean, I graduated. Well, what do you do? And it, I actually started having recurring dreams that I would show up for class unprepared. And I, I had those dreams for a couple years because it was just all that I knew, and suddenly you have a little bit of an identity crisis whenever life changes. We all have identities that we go by in life. No matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, you have an identity that you reveal, you take with you into life. Whenever you were in school, you have the smart kids, you have the athletes, you have the band man. Anybody an athlete whenever you were in school? A few. Okay. How many of you were bandmans or bandwomen in school? How many of y'all were the smart kids in school? Yeah. And that's kind of, that's kind of your... Uh, is there someone down here that fits that? Oh, Levi. Oh, anyway. Okay. And so you find your identity in, in that role that you play. There's also the identity of the stand on the fringe and talk about how dumb everybody else is group in school, right? Some of you all bet we're in that group. Uh, and, and then some people in our society, you find your identity in your appearance, maybe in your physical strength, maybe in your career, maybe through your children. That's, but we all have identities that we take into life. Well, in Luke chapter 11, we were introduced to a young man who had lost his identity. We saw him last week, and we talked about how at one point he was a normal little boy. I can envision him taking swimming lessons down at the YMCA and then coming home and playing with his little Batman Legos and being so excited whenever he puts together the Batmobile. 
He probably played ninjas with his daddy late at night and had a good time wrestling. He was just a normal little boy. He lived in a society in which you were told what your identity was. Usually, your identity came from your family. And so very early on, you were slotted with an identity. If your dad was a baker, then the expectation was is that you would grow up and be a baker. If your family were slaves, then your identity was that you would grow up and you would be a slave. If your family was considered to be noble people, then you were expected to grow up and be a nobleman. There were no guidance counselors at Jerusalem High School. You knew what you were supposed to be. From the time you were very young, you were told by society, by the world around you, this is who you are. And so this kid probably had been given an identity that he rebelled from. Somewhere along the course of life, he began running from God. He probably ran from his family, from his identity, from the very things that he was taught in synagogue. And he went so far away from God that he became an individual that was possessed by evil. He literally had a demonic spirit within him. And so whenever we arrive at chapter 11 of Luke, we see this young man in a tragic state. Evil had stolen his potential. Evil had stolen his life. Evil had even stolen his voice. Evil had ridden into his village. It had captured him. It had sold him into slavery. His life and his identity were now gone. He was totally in the grip of evil. But then he met Jesus in verse 14. And Jesus set him free. The demonic spirit was driven out of the young man. Last week we saw that no sooner had the demonic spirit been driven out of him that this young man became the center of controversy because some of those that witnessed the miracle saw this as an evil act. It's staggering to me, but here was their accusation. They accused Jesus of doing miracles with demonic power. Now, you know that you've arrived at evil's house when you start seeing good as bad and bad as good. When the Son of God Himself is standing in your midst, ministering and delivering a young man who is totally captured by evil from that spirit, and you see that as an act of evil, you know you're knocking at the door of evil's house. Well, within that passage, Jesus makes some of his most famous statements. And even if you don't go to church very often, you're probably familiar with these statements. In verse 17, he said, A house divided against itself falls. In verse 23, he said, Anyone who is not with me is against me. Now, those two verses are favorite verses of football coaches and military guys in the movies. But in reality, they have nothing to do with winning a football game or conquering your enemy. In reality, they were both given to us in a spiritual context, and they both have to do 
with the spiritual battle that takes place within a person's soul or within their heart. So if you'll look with me to verse 24, Jesus begins explaining the situation a bit more. Jesus says, when an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it roams through waterless places looking for rest. And not finding rest, it then says, I'll go back to my house where I came from. And returning, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down. As a result, that man's last condition is worse than the first. Whenever I was a boy, uh, I grew up in a very, very conservative church. Uh, Now, I'm thankful for my roots. I would never disparage my root system. The church I grew up in, they thought Southern Baptists were liberal. I mean, if you think Southern Baptists are liberal, you're pretty conservative at that point. So that's how I grew up. And, and in the church, there were several behavioral things that people would look to. And if you followed those behavioral things, then it would indicate that you were right with God. And so there were expectations. You were expected to come to church every week, not just on Sunday morning, But you were expected to come to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And we had worship services at each of those times. Not only did you come to church three times a week, but if you were really close to God, you came to Tuesday night visitation. And you also brought your Bible, and you wore your Sunday best whenever you came to church. Anybody remember Sunday go to meet and close? That's a good country term, isn't it? You know, you had, your, you had your Sunday outfit that you only wore on Sunday. Whenever I was a kindergartner, I always wore a suit to church. And so those things kind of showed that you were right with God within the community. Men were expected to have short haircuts above the ear, and they were expected to be clean-shaven, and women were expected to wear dresses to church, and they were also expected to bring a lot of food. There were always potlucks, and women were always supposed to bring food to those potlucks. A lot of deviled eggs. I I never understood why Baptist potlucks always had deviled eggs, but they, they did. And so if you said the right things, and if you looked the part, then church was a great place to be, and you would get promoted in church. Church is one of the few places on earth where you get promoted just for showing up and looking the part. But now, here was one of the problems that began to emerge, and I, it still exists today, there are some that can look the part, talk the language, but have an empty heart. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus has freed the man from the demonic spirit. And so this guy says to himself, I, I am so thankful to be freed from this demonic spirit. There are some things in my life that need to change. And so he decides, I'm going to get my house in order. And so he quits going out every Saturday night and getting drunk. He starts coming to church a couple times a month, every month. He even posts Christian things on his Facebook wall. He even friends Pastor Lash. And he says to himself, I'm going to try to be a better man. I'm going to treat people right, and I'm going to try to do 
the right thing. Now, meanwhile, the demonic spirit that used to have a home within his body is now homeless. And so Jesus personifies him as a wandering hiker. He cannot find shelter. He doesn't have a home. In fact, Jesus says he's going through waterless lands. If you've ever been out in the wilderness and you don't have water, it is a terrifying place to be. And so the man can't even, the demon can't even find a drink of water. So the demon says to himself, enough of this. I'm going back home. So he goes back to this young man's life who had been delivered from evil. And whenever he arrives back at his life, he is surprised to find that the house has been cleaned up. The young man has gone to Mardell's. And he now has wall art with Christian verses around the house. He's gone and put locks on the door. And so it's no longer easy. He now has a filter and he doesn't just let anything into his life. This young man is trying. He is trying really hard to behave better. But the demon is not to be deterred. So he goes and gets seven other demons and then he comes back. You see, there's something you should know about evil. And that is that evil knows your weak spots. Evil knows where you are tempted. Evil knows where you are vulnerable. And so the demon goes and he gets seven other evil temptations or spirit. And then he comes back. And the guy tries to resist. But eventually he goes back to his old life. And the guilt that he feels because he knows that he shouldn't live this way, the guilt that he feels becomes a motivation to drive him further and further away from God. Now here's the problem in the text of Scripture. The man was trying to look the part, but he had an empty heart. He was trying to behave, but like a pig returning to the mud, the sinner always returns to the sin. You see, what he needed was not behavior modification. What he needed was heart transformation. Now, I want to say that again, and this time, give me an amen. What he needed was not behavior modification. What he needed was heart transformation. There you go. We're having church today. Here we go. He was trying hard. But as much as he tried, evil was still greater than he. You see, you don't square off with evil through sheer willpower. What he really needed was spiritual power. What he needed was Jesus. The one who stared evil in the face, took on death, and won. His heart, his body had been delivered from the demonic spirit, but his heart needed the presence of God within it. Do you understand now 
what Jesus means when he says, a house divided against itself falls. If you don't have the Spirit of God living within you, your house, your spiritual house, is destined to fall. Anyone who is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. You see, a Christian is not someone who simply says the right things and then tries to keep his or her life in order. Within the southern states, we have a lot of this. We try to say the Christian things, try to be a good man, try to be a good woman, and just try to do the right thing. Treating people right and saying the right things does not make you a Christian. If that's your version of Christianity, then you are destined to fail because your house is divided against itself. A Christian is someone who admits that your identity is intoxicated with sin. Understand this. Within yourself, you have no ability to free yourself from your addiction to sin. You can say religious things. It doesn't free you. You can behave better, but that's not going to solve the core problem. A Christian abandons self-identity and places his or her faith totally in Christ. The one who took on your sinful identity when he gave his life for your sins. And when God justifies you in Christ, what that means is when God says you are no longer guilty, when God says you are mine, when God says you are my child, the theological term is righteousness. When God sees you as righteous, he sees you in Christ, not in your own identity. It is because he sees you in Christ You have taken on a new identity. So the act of faith that causes you to bow before the cross, receiving Christ as Savior, is an emptying of self-identity and an identification with Christ as Savior. And spiritually, God sees you in Christ. So when Christ was on the cross, you are in Christ. When Christ overcame death, you are in Christ. And He sees you as righteous. He justifies you. You are not guilty in Christ, not in yourself. It's not about your willpower. It's not about how good you can try to be. It's about whether or not you are in Christ and your new identity in Christ, that's what changes everything. That's what sets you free. That's what leads to a new way of behaving, a new way of living. Because whenever you are in Christ, you are now free to be the person that God created you to be and to live the life that God designed for you to live. It's been my experience that we all need to have an identity, no matter how young or old, rich or poor, no matter where you are in life, we all have to have an identity. And so we try very hard to 
fashion our identity so that people will see us in a certain way. And most of the time, people will find their identity from one of three places. For most of human history, people always found their identity from the outside. In fact, still today, in most of the world, people find their identity from the outside. Others will tell you who you are. Others will tell you what is expected of you and the role that you will play. And so when you find your identity from others, what you do is you hear what people say, you hear what people think you should be, and then you begin adapting your life so that you can meet their expectations. A lot of people find their identity from others. Whether it's trying to fit into a particular group in society, uh, people will tell you, this is what you're supposed to be. But now here's the big shortcoming with trying to find your identity from others. Number one, it's imprisoning. You don't really feel free because other people have control over who you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to think, how you're supposed to vote, how you're supposed to react, what you're supposed to say. And so you're always ultimately looking to others to tell you who you're supposed to be. Secondly, whenever you find your identity from the outside, I can promise you this, it is exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting because you spend all your days trying to live up to the expectations that others have set for you. And here's how it works. They give you a to-do list. Shh. This is all that you're supposed to do to meet my expectations. And so you want to find your identity and you want to be approved. So you say, okay, I'll do this. Check, 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 check. You come back to them. I finished the list. Good. I've been working on another list. Go after it. Get with it. Go. And so people spend their entire life trying to live up to the expectations of others that they can never meet. And eventually they begin to discover the hollowness of that identity. You live and die and two generations later nobody even remembers you. And it just starts feeling very empty. So within our culture, the American culture, about um, 60, 70 years ago, about, it began changing. People started saying, quit finding your identity from the outside, and what you need to do is really find your identity from the inside. This really began to culminate about the time the Berlin Wall fell, around 1990, in what emerged, as if you're a philosophical person, as the postmodern thought. Postmodern thought said, you don't find your identity from the outside, you find your identity from the inside. You decide who you're going to be, what your role is going to be. And do not let anyone tell you who you are. I decide who I am. And I'll discover my life on my own. So like Elsa from the movie Frozen, you have to 
Break free of the rules, break free of the characterizations, break free of the expectations, and you have to go out and you have to live life on your own and be the person that you want to be. In its fullest development, this ideology says that you, you begin to find your identity from yourself, and it is you who defines meaning. Yeah, we realize that if all there is is the material world and you live and you die, that's pretty depressing. So what we do is we create meaning. Whatever it is that I want meaning to be, I will create it, and that's what it is. Within this idea, morality becomes self-defined. I decide for myself what is right. You decide for yourself what is right. And you're not right. I'm not right. We just are. And generally, the idea is is that as long as my morality doesn't harm someone, then it's okay. But there's different definitions and ideas of what harming is. There are some that feel that, well, uh, I can practice whatever sexual ethic I want to, and it doesn't harm anybody because it's mine. But there are others that say, no, if you practice that sexual ethic, it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt people that you love. It's going to hurt people that you will love in the future. And it will hurt society around you as well. And so here is the big problem with trying to find your identity from within. And that is that eventually it will adorn itself in pride and selfishness. You see, if you're trying to define meaning and you're trying to define identity from within, eventually you're going to reach a point where you think, I have to only think of myself and what's best for me. And so you'll be wearing pride and selfishness everywhere you go. The identity that you will display to the world will ultimately be one of pride and one of selfishness. Now here's the problem with that. At the root of sin is pride and selfishness. Those are root causes of sin. So whenever I try to find my meaning and my identity and who I am from within, it's going to ultimately lead me to worship me, and that's ultimately going to lead me away from God. And the end result of a life lived in pride and selfishness is death. And that's a little part that we don't like to think about, that we're all going to die. But it always looms around us like a dark cloud. So there's also a third way to find your identity. It is the biblical way. You find your identity from above, through your salvation. You find your identity in Christ. And you realize that you were created for a purpose. That the life that you live is not accidental. That God gave you the gift of life. That's why we as Christians are champions for life. Because we believe that it's intentional. We champion life in the unborn state. We champion life for the elderly, for the handicapped, for the orphaned. At every stage of life, we as Christians champion life because 
We do not believe that life is just an accident. Life is something that God has gifted us. As a believer, whenever you begin to look above for your identity, you begin to see that your life, your identity is found in Christ. And so your life's journey becomes a spiritual journey to become the person that you were created to be. And the goal of that journey is not pride. The goal of that journey is not selfishness. It's not about, hey, look at me. The goal of that journey is to know God, to live with people that you love through the journey, and to make Him known to others. In other words, your journey is no longer about your glory. Whenever your identity comes from above, your journey is about His glory. Now, If you will live your life seeking to bring glory to God in every area of your life, finding your identity in Christ, that then transcends every circumstance because you become one of those few individuals that lives with a singleness of purpose in your love relationships, in your marriage, in the way that you live, the ethics that you embrace. You have a singleness of purpose to bring glory to God, to make Him known. Whether you're in the church or in the community, whether you're at school or whether you're in the boardroom, wherever you are, there's a singleness of purpose. I want to simply bring glory to my Lord because I want to be the person He's created me to be, and that is my journey in life. It's a spiritual journey. To be the one that I've been designed to be since even before my birth. You see, the most liberating day of your life is when you quit looking out or in to discover who you are. And you start looking up. Do you realize that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, my friend? You are a custom-made creation of Almighty God. There is nobody on planet Earth that is exactly like you. And there are a lot of people that are thankful that there's nobody else on planet Earth exactly like you. (laughs) You're one of a kind. You're not an accident. No matter the circumstances of your birth, no matter how rough your childhood was or what you've done in your past, You're not an accident. God created you on purpose. You're also not temporary. You are created to live for all eternity. But you were not created to live a life adorned in pride and selfishness. You are created to live a life that reflects the glory of God. So find your purpose. Live your spiritual journey. And everywhere you go in life, live with that singleness of purpose that I want to know God and I want to make Him known and I want to be a person that reflects His glory.